Hi, everyone. You're listening to the 10-7 Podcast, where we get together every fortnight, and sometimes more often, to talk about technology, business, and the humans in it. I'm your host, Ivan Stegich. My guest today is Chuck Hermes, founding partner at Clockwork, former night receptionist at Paisley Park Studios, avid bicyclist and skier, and also a lover of cooking, which has recently also become a joy for me as well. And it turns out we're both fans of Kenji Lopez-Elt, who was on our show recently. So we're going to geek out a little bit about that as well. So hello, welcome to the show, Chuck. You are, thanks. Yes. Yeah, it's lovely to have you on. I, I guess the triumvirate is complete for guests on the 107 podcast, both you and Nancy and Michael Koppelman. Thanks for having me. Well, it's good to be talking to leaders like yourselves from the Twin Cities. Thanks. I, before we get started, I have a, a kind of an embarrassing admission to make here. Uh-oh. How, how long is a fortnight? How long is a fortnight? I'm glad you ask. It's two weeks. It's two bi. Weeks. It's bi-weekly. It's a very, it's a very English thing. Apparently, I grew yes. up in South Africa, and I just assumed everyone knew what it meant. And then we we put it in the name of or the preamble of the podcast, and people ask, and it's awesome. Good. Well, I assume that everybody knows what that means too, except for me, which is why it's an embarrassing <laughs> admission. It's hardly embarrassing. My daughter and my son thought it meant um, the game. So, <laughs> you know, they're that age. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I like to start out by asking where our guests are from and where they grew up. So are you Minnesotan? Are you a local guy? I have lived in Minnesota my whole life. I grew up in a town in west central Minnesota called Fergus Falls. And um, I left there shortly after high school for Minneapolis in pursuit of a music career and spent uh, a few years playing in some bands in the area, touring around the country, but eventually, you know, found my, my, my plan was to go back to school at some point. Um, and eventually I just rediscovered a love of, of graphic arts um, that I had had my entire childhood, you know, illustration, drawing, any kind of artistic thing I was interested in. Where I started was Fergus Falls and then to Minneapolis. So Fergus Falls, for those of you who don't know, are, is almost on the border of North Dakota, correct? Yep, 20 miles from uh, Breckenridge, Minnesota, and Wahpeton, North Dakota. So I, I promise I did not Google that when you said Fergus Falls. And the only reason I know where Fergus Falls is because I used to work at Emation, and we had a manufacturing facility in Wahpeton, North Dakota. So uh -huh. driving up to Wahpeton from the Twin Cities, we had to drive through and past Fergus Falls. Yeah, that's right. It's flat out there. It is. It's, it's, it's flat to the west, and it's very hilly and beautiful to the east from there. So um, we're kind of right on the edge of, of hill country up there. So you made your way to the Twin Cities to play music. What kind of music were you playing? Just playing in a bunch of bands, uh, primarily a band called Mile One. that We played all original kind of rock, pop uh, you know, it was called alternative or underground music at that time. This would have been late 80s. And then you find yourself being a night receptionist at Paisley Park. I can't believe that's a coincidence that it's related to music. <laughs> yeah. Well, what happened there was uh, I got to the point where I realized that a career in music was not going to happen, and mm. I was ready to make a change. So 
uh, that band I was in, Mile One, we had studio time booked at Paisley Park, and I decided to leave the band, so I called uh, the studio to cancel the, the studio time for the band, and then just happened to ask, do you have any jobs available? <laughs> Great. And John Dressel, the studio manager, said, yes, as a matter of fact, we do. Why don't you come on out? So I drove out and had an interview and, and uh, left with a job. Wow, that's great. Um, and then you worked your way up to actually starting their in-house art department. Yes. So, so how did that arc happen? Yeah. I, I imagine. Mm -hmm. um, so at the same time that I started working at Paisley Park, I enrolled at MCAD. Um, as I was doing my night reception duties um, at Paisley, I had a lot of time and used that time to, to do my artwork and, and my schoolwork. And, you know, people around the studio recognized what I was doing and started assigning me tasks, little design tasks around the studio, which uh, over time um, turned into I, I moved from the night receptionist position to being hired within the same building by Warner Brothers, who was, you know, the, the Prince's record company and the record company affiliated with Paisley Park Records. So I went from night receptionist to working as a, a executive ex assistant at, uh, or administrative assistant at Paisley Park Records, which was a Warner Brothers company. And there I did a lot of work on um, kind of liaison between uh, Paisley Park and Prince and the artists and Warner Brothers art department. Um, so that's how I kind of transitioned into um, kind of the, the art production side of the business. And then it just kind of went on from there where Prince at that time, all of the record covers, all of the artwork, pretty much everything was done through Warner Brothers. So any of those cover designs were designers that worked for Warner Brothers, you know, on one of the coasts. And then he used a lot of people locally and regionally for things like tour sets and tour graphics and, you know, just all of this other stuff that he was doing. But officially there was never an art department at Paisley. It just was freelancers coming in to do this and that. Um, and then depending on what was going on, like the Graffiti Bridge, the movie, was uh, just wrapping up the, the sets. They were just kind of taking the sets down on that when I started working there. And so there were a bunch of designers and freelancers that were working on that. But once that project was over, they dispersed. And and there was, you know, uh, this this gap at Paisley of, I didn't, I, I, what I, the question I asked was, do you realize that we can do a lot of what you're sourcing out in-house here? And at that point, they said, no, we didn't realize that. So why don't you uh, take on the task of building an art department here? What a wonderful assignment to build a department for Prince. Yes, and I was grossly underqualified, uh, which was okay, I guess, um, you know, being just having started school. And then ultimately, I dropped out of school because I had this opportunity to take this role at Paisley Park or be a student. I couldn't do both. At that time, well, someone so, must have had some belief and foundational trust in you to be able to tell you that you could do that for for a living and, and believe in you. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, that's one thing that Prince is really good at was taking risks with people. And, you know, when you worked out there, you would get he would ask you to do things that were way outside of what you would consider your job description. And that went for anybody that worked there. Mm. And, you know, if you proved that you were trustworthy and get the job done. He just continued to, and Paisley Park in general, just continued to, to give you more, um, 
work and, and more trust in doing the things that needed to be done. So, you know, I had been there for quite a while at that point, and I think that I had proven my trustworthiness and, and my capabilities. Uh, but what I did immediately was went and looked for somebody who come, could come in as a creative director and run the department, because like I said, I wasn't qualified to do that. So ultimately we hired uh, Jeff Munson, uh, who had worked at Paisley Park prior, but uh, lived in Illinois, and he moved up, and, and Jeff and I were the art department there for a couple of years. What was your favorite piece of art that you ever worked on for Paisley Park? Well, what happened there then, so this was an interesting period of time for Prince and Paisley, because right about this time is when, um, well, the records that that he was putting out at that time uh, was Graffiti Bridge and then Diamonds and Pearls and then the Love Symbol album. Mm -hmm. And then shortly after that, um, well, I'll get into that in a second. So those three albums were essentially kind of the last of his legitimate Warner Brothers records. And this is when he uh, decided that he wanted to part with Warners and began this dispute with them, which then led to him retiring the name Prince and changing his name to the artist formerly known as Prince. Unfortunately for me, like that time period, there weren't really many records coming out. So I never did get, you know, a design credit on a Prince record. I got design credits on all sorts of other stuff, you know, again, like tour graphics and, you know, promotional materials and other artists on the label CDs. So I think, you know, as far as like a piece of artwork that I would be most proud of that I was involved in back then, I, I can't even name it. There was so much stuff. Um, but yeah, unfortunately, there wasn't an actual, you know, Prince CD release that had my name on it. And so this was, you were at Paisley Park in the early 90s, and I believe Prince separated from Warner Brothers kind of after like the mid-90s, if I'm like, I remember the mid-90s, post-high, like, right around the end of high school, beginning of college for me, and all of a sudden, Prince disappeared, and there was Symbol, and I couldn't, like, I couldn't find any of his stuff anymore <laughs> in Africa. Like, it was just, it just disappeared. Yep, so, so, yeah, there was the feud between Prince and Warner Brothers. And, it's, you know, he would have Slave written, I don't know if you remember that, but he would write Slave on his face um, My around gosh. that time. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah, records weren't coming out at that time and the ones that he did, so there was a record called Come that nobody has heard of that um you know Jeff Munson did uh this beautiful artwork for and it's a very dark album. Um and but you know that was probably like the poorest selling Prince album of wow. all time, you know, at that time just because he he basically I don't think he was into it. He put out this record to fulfill his contract and uh, it was done. Done, yeah. And then after that, he started releasing things on his own label. Um, NPG, right? NPG, yep. So there was um, there was one called 1-800-NEW-FUNK. Uh, then there was The Beautiful Experience. And just a bunch of stuff was happening at that time. Like, you know, he had three or four kind of records that he was juggling and releasing at the same time, but but none of them were. They didn't have the power of Warner Brothers, you know, promoting Behind them. It. So, mm -hmm. so they were just kind of, you know, hung out there for anybody who discovered them. Now, when I talked to Michael Koppelman, he had mentioned that um, you and he worked on Prince's BBS, and yeah. I discovered today or yesterday um, that it had this name, The Dawn. What well, what is The Dawn? 
so how that happened then was kind of as this art department was being developed, um, Michael and I were both working at Paisley at that time and were experimenting with networking. So I remember one night seeing Mike with his, he had this laptop, I think it was an old, you know, one of the first Mac laptops that was probably the size of a suitcase. <laughs> and he had it plugged into a phone jack and I just asked what he's doing, you know, and he said he was experimenting with, with some kind of, um, you know, relay chat at that time. So that got me interested in that. So he and I started experimenting with that technology. Um, and this was about the time that, you know, very early adopters were getting online. So like America Online maybe had launched a year before, but it wasn't really a public launch yet. So it was really small. Um, there were a couple other networks like that where people were starting to kind of drift in. CompuServe, Ter I think, was one of them. Right? CompuServe, yep. Terrible graphic interfaces, if mm -hmm. they had graphic interfaces at all. And so it was very technical. Um, but we were experimenting with that, and we found this software called First Class that allowed this great flexibility in creating a custom user interface. Um, so anyway, about that time, I did brought this up to Prince, and you know he was completely unaware of any of this. So uh, you know I brought it up to him, and then the next day I ended up bringing my Mac from home and going up into the one of offices upstairs at Paisley Park and plugging it in, and I gave him a tour of America Online and some of this <laughs> other stuff. And you know the light bulb went off in his head at that point because he was looking at this and thinking about his situation with Warner Brothers oh. and he wanted to cut out the middleman. He wanted complete control over his his work and the distribution of his work. So I remember him turning to me and just saying, so we can we can deliver music this way? And this was, I mean, like downloading a song at that time through an old modem would have taken a day and a half. Mm -hmm. But of course I said, yes, of course we can. <laughs> <laughs> so that then sent me off on this parallel journey from the art department stuff to digital and um, so you know using kind of my clout as a Paisley Park representative and representing Prince I was able to get meetings with you know the heads at AOL and uh, you know people at Microsoft and all these like super heavyweight uh, people that were very uh, instrumental in developing kind of these early BBS and online communication technologies so Prince decided that time we had a bunch of, you know, meetings, chit-chatting. It was really exciting because he was pumped up and really wanted to do this. And he decided that, you know, yes, I want you to build this. Let's build this and let's call it the Dawn. So that was the name he gave it. That was the name he gave it. Oh. Um, and then at about that time, Michael uh, took his exit papers. And I think I think, I think you mean got fired. Isn't yes, that what you yes. Mean? Or the way he put it in the podcast was people just disappear one day. Well, <laughs> right. Michael had Michael had disappeared one day, and you know Michael was the technical side of this whole endeavor, and I was the visual design side of this endeavor. So we secretly partnered on this because you know Prince would not have allowed Michael to continue to be involved in this. So we, um, you know, just kind of kept the Michael piece of this partnerships uh, quiet and we built a prototype BBS called the Dawn. And, you know, I was able to bring in little uh, audio clips and, you know, for sounds th uh, throughout the interface and all of the Prince graphics that I had access to and had created for all the artwork. And we built this beautiful BBS 
And um, he was, I can't remember which tour, I think he was on the Diamonds and Pearls tour at that time. So we were, you know, communicating about this stuff and looking over progress on this like daily for a long time. Then he went on tour and he came back on a break. You know, this probably would have been, you know, a month or six weeks later. And it was late one night, you know, we're working on, we, we tended to work late hours, come in late and work late because that's when he was in the studio. And um, I said, hey, I've got uh, an update to show you. Why don't you, you know, swing on down to my office? So he and his, uh, you know, eventually to be wife, Maite, came walking down the hall into uh, my office one night and, and I sat him down and, and said, this is the dawn. And, you know, clicked the button and the modem made all its racket and it con- connected to a computer elsewhere. And, you know, this, this whole beautiful interface and sound uh, came up. And he looked at me and he looked at the thing and he looked at me and he said, so what is this? And I said, this is, this is what we've been talking about. This is the dawn. And he said, and you did this? And I said, well, we did this. And I felt the energy in the room change to, mm-hmm. to this really odd, you know, negative energy. And he said, so who owns this? And I said, well, this, this is what we've been talking about. So this is on my computer here, and we're logging into another computer, which I said was at my house or my apartment in Minneapolis, and that's where the server is, so that's how it works. And he said, so you own this. Anyway, you kind of get the picture of what was happening, yeah. here, which, which ended up being he, he stormed out of the office, even gave me a little shove and stormed out of the office that night. And uh, for the next two weeks, I would see him around the studio, but he wouldn't look at me, he wouldn't talk to me. It wasn't the normal where he would check in every day on, you know, what we were up to in the art department. And then two weeks later, I got my pink slip, and that was the day I disappeared. Wow. Do you think he, do you think you could have explained it in a way that he would have been comfortable with the control and the ownership that he actually probably already had over it? Right. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, it, the ownership was his. The ownership was Paisley Parks. It's yeah. just like, you know, any anything that's created there, you know, I'm a paid staffer and I get paid my hourly wage. I have no right to the, you know, to the ownership of the the products that we created. So I don't know if I could have explained it better. I think it, it was a situation of where he was in this very uh, distrust, is that the right word, distrusting uh, frame of mind with Warner Brothers, with, you know, I think there was some bootlegging stuff going on at that time. And I I think he felt like I had this somehow power to, like, put his music online and deliver it without his knowledge. Mm. Boy, and it was such a different environment compared to what it is like now, like 30 years later of where the internet, or 25 years later of where the internet is and how ubiquitous devices are and and I mean, it must have been a great unknown for well, for you as well. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. We were just trying to figure it out as we went. And But I think about that, you know, I had heard years later or all the way, you know, through to when, through his death, he didn't allow people to bring mobile phones or smartphones into the studio. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think he was always, and it's it's pretty evident, you know, that he was worried about control of his content and he didn't want anybody to 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 get control of his content so 
Now, the irony of the situation is that he wanted to cut out the middleman and go directly to consumers with that kind of control that he wanted. And fast forward to right now where anyone can be a musician and anyone can get to those consumers and those listeners, but only to be really successful, you need either a viral hit or you need a record label. Like it's, right. it's gone completely the other way around. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but so the, you know, the silver lining of all of this was that then Michael and I took everything we had learned by building the Dawn and created uh, the Bitstream Underground BBS, which was a huge success regionally. And we created this environment for um, artists musicians, you know, just generally people that were interested in the arts kind of were attracted uh, to this BBS and we created this really cool, unique community of people and sharing of information that um, turned into a legitimate business for us. Bitstream Underground, and we talked about that with Michael, but the one thing we didn't talk about was Stress Lab, that you started at a, I don't know if you started it, but the timing is about the same time as Bitstream Underground as well. Yeah, they, they happened at the same time. So but after Paisley Park, I still needed to make money. So I started... <laughs> <laughs> Stupid having to live and feed yourself. That's... That's right. I was doing freelance design work, and Jeff Munson and Liz Luce, who had been hired to take my place at Paisley Park probably six months after that, they decided that they were done. They wanted to, to leave. And, you know, Jeff could tell the story, but basically, you know, he, he left out of, um, I, I guess, just feeling how I had been kind of mistreated here. Mm. He decided that he didn't, he didn't want to stick around, so he left. So anyway, the three of us, Jeff, Liz, and myself, we started Stress Lab then about six months later officially. And, um, you know, we had some fun with that too because we were doing a lot of, artwork for the record labels that we had worked with and connections we had through um, Paisley Park. So, you know, we were doing a lot of Warner Brothers work, Sony Records, um, Spin Magazine, uh, just a whole oh, long spin. list of, of uh, you know, music-related um, clientele, I guess. You kind of refer to yourselves with this really long uh, acronym that, um, if you wouldn't mind saying it, uh, I, I want to give you the, <laughs> the pleasure of saying Right. Yeah, we had some fun with that because that was right at the time that Prince was telling people that his name was the artist formerly known as Prince, Tafcap, the artist formerly known as Prince. So we just kind of riffed on that and said that Stress Lab is the artist formerly known as the artist for the artist formerly known as Prince. <laughs> so great. <laughs> Well, I'm, you did some really amazing work and eventually ended up starting a company that you've been involved with now that's called Clockwork in 2002. Mm -hmm. And you've been there since the founding. And you, found, and you founded that with Nancy, who was also on our show. What's your role at Clockwork right now? That's an interesting question. That's hard to answer. So with Clockwork and Bitstream before it, um, I my role was to lead the visual design side of things. And so if we're talking back, you know, late 90s into early 2000s, it still was considered a graphic designer's job to create interfaces for websites and, and um, you know, any of this stuff. And so 
you know, th that was my role. Like Clockwork, we started with four people. It was myself, Michael Koppelman, Nancy Lyons, and Kurt Koppelman. And so we had all the bases covered. Like Nancy was uh, really leading the business and sales, and Michael and Kurt were technology, and I was on the creative side. And then as we grew, we added staff and the, the industry evolved to a point of where, you know, it was no longer necessarily graphic designers that were doing that work. Now we needed information architects and uh, which turned into user experience professionals. And so I always, uh, up until the last couple of years, led that discipline at Clockwork. Um, but one of the beauties of being in a business like Clockwork and being a business owner is that I was able to kind of evolve my role uh, over the years, like I said, from designer to, to UX to, you know, whatever the, the evolution was and whatever the need was on that side of the business, I was able to take that on, learn and build, you know, the right staff to do that work. Um, and about two years ago, we hired um, Micah Spieler, who is now the uh, creative director, essentially, or director of uh user experience and at that point I didn't I had kind of lost um, my path of where I should go next in the business so I decided that I would take uh, essentially uh, kind of a hiatus with the business so I really did step away for about a year and a half and then about a year or nine months ago now I re-entered the business and um, am coming back in so the in uh, more of the interest that I have in the business now versus before, I guess it's always been an interest, is the experience of the people working at Clockwork and the experience of our clients. So, um, you know, customer experience and employee experience, and that's where my interest is now. So I don't really have a title uh, connected to that, but th that's the part of the business that I love and I'm working on. Why do you think you've been as successful as you have as an organization it, does it have something to do with that attention to the client's experience, to the employee's experience? Absolutely. You know, for years we had or have had, well, for the entirety of Clockwork, we've had a reputation of being a great place to work. And, you know, we won awards year after year after year for, you know, best place to work competitions. Um, and I think that the four of us wanted to create a company and a company culture that we were comfortable working in. And... Surpri well, maybe not surprisingly, but I think luckily our personalities work so well together that um, it was pretty easy to nurture a culture as we added staff around kind of the personalities and the types of people that we, we are. The gauge that I've used my entire career is how do I feel on Monday mornings? And so it's the Monday morning gut check. And, you know, I have family members and friends who all stress out on Sunday nights thinking about, oh, God, here's the start to another week. Mm -hmm. And for me, I felt very fortunate that Sunday nights, I'm excited. Don't get me wrong. I love my family. I love my weekends. I love everything <laughs> I do. But um, I'm also equally uh, excited about Mondays and the work we do and the people that we work with. So um, I, I, I hope that, and my hope has been, through the entire existence of clockworks that people feel the same. And I mm. think that that truly is, you know, that, that culture piece is kind of the secret, the, the magic component of, of the company's success. I, I, I 
completely understand what you're saying, can identify with it as well. I had a job before I started 10-7 where I started to get really sad on a Sunday night because Monday morning was coming and I really didn't want to be in the place I was at. And I don't remember ever feeling like that um, with 10-7. And I think that's our desire is for the people that we work with to have exactly that same feeling. Like you want to be able to go to work on a Monday morning and not dread the fact that that's happening. So, mm -hmm. so that's, that's a wonderful um, measure of, um, of success, I think. You know, our COVID world and working 100% remotely is potentially a challenge to that. You know, I think that we've done a good job of adapting and fortunately, you know, we're a pretty uh, remote working staff anyway. Even prior to this, people were used to working remotely, but going 100% um, you know, distributed staff is very different because we have this great building and people just really enjoyed collaborating and working together and sharing the common spaces within our buildings. So, you know, um, I'm, I'm hoping, and that's another thing I'm just really concerned about, which is why I want to re-engage in that part of the business now. That, that was actually what I was going to ask you about. Um, it, how has the distributed work been, been treating you and treating the organization? So prior to this, we encouraged the staff and each individual staff member to work when and where they're most productive. So if that means coming into the office and keeping normal you know, business day, nine to five, great. If you wanna set hours different during the day and you're, all, all you had to do was be available when your teams needed you to, to communicate and connect. And so for years, we had that policy, but uh, I was happy to see that the majority of the people came in to the office the majority of the days because they just like being here with their coworkers you know, people would take time and work from home and we gave them the tools to do that very early. You know, everybody's got uh, a laptop and, you know, even before laptops were that common, you know, we tried to get people remote working tools that, that they could use and make it easy for them. You know, how it's working out so far, it seems, seems to be that people are adapting fine. We decided with the buildings that, you know, we have a limited number of people that can be in the buildings now. Um, we haven't declared like, all right, let's bring people back into the office. But what we wanted to do was open up the offices so that anybody who can't concentrate at home, um, you know, there's lots of people here that have young families and young kids. So, you know, those are the people that tend to come in maybe a couple days a week here for a few hours just to um, get some real, you know, focus time. Aside from that, I, that's what I'm trying to gauge is how happy are people in this new world? And we're, you know, six or seven months in now. So that's kind of one of my goals now is to figure out how happy are people and what are we going to do on the other side of this thing? What will normal look like a year or two years from now mm -hmm. compared to what normal is today? Yeah, it's, um, it's a tough situation to be in as, an organ uh, as the leader of an organization. Ha have you used any tools to gauge employee uh, satisfaction we we are using know your team and we've had claire lou on the show before are, do you have something that you're using yeah we well we just stopped using it uh, probably six months ago and i'm having a little brain lock here i can't remember what the name of the tool was but it was yeah an online thing that gauged you know i did little surveys once a week and um sent out you know uh 
basically polls to people randomly as well as kind of these um, very frequent mm -hmm. measures. And like I said, we kind of decided to stop using that, which was just about the time that COVID hit. Because basically we're mm -hmm. getting the same results and the same info, you know, for years we had been getting the same stuff. So All again, that's why I'm sitting back mm -hmm. in the seat right now of thinking what's the best way that we can measure employee satisfaction. My coach likes to remind me that a part of my job is being a chief paranoia officer. At <laughs> and what's a nightmare scenario for you in 2021? Oh boy. <laughs> I think, you know, my wife and I were just talking about, uh, she had found a t-shirt that had like 20, 2020, it was a t-shirt and then it had, it had the five star rating with like half a star colored in. And... <laughs> <laughs> right. And then I thought, well, Google review of 2020 look like, cause right now <laughs> it could be shittier than 2020. I don't know. You know, so the, so the nightmare scenario is that, yeah. um, you know, we do another shutdown and, um, there isn't the government support that we had because we were able to, um, you know, get some of the, the PPP funding to help, um, sustain us through the shutdown in the early part of the year. And, you know, right now, business in general is yeah. looking better than it has for the last 12 months. Um, so we're feeling really good about that. But who knows, you know, what happens with COVID and is the bottom going to fall out again? So I think, you know, that's what any business right. person would tell you, you know, right. at this point, right? And this episode is publishing after the results of the election have been finalized, I think. Uh <laughs> I did. I did turn notifications off on my computer, so I wouldn't be uh, interrupted during this conversation. <laughs> just... Thank you. I did the same thing. So maybe we already have resolution, and and um, and we just don't know about it. <laughs> right. We're just waiting on Georgia right now. Come on, Georgia. I love J. Kenji Lopez Alts. I discovered yeah. you do as well. That food lab book that he created is amazing. How many yeah. times have you read that? You know, it's, it's, it's nearby all the time. And I just loved his approach to, you know, the science of food because I've always loved mm. cooking and especially after like a hard day at work, I love coming home and in summertime and we've got a beautiful garden and going and grabbing some stuff. And I just love chopping vegetables. It's sort of a Zen activity for me. And, um, and then I don't read my wife bought me that book and I, it just changed my Same. entire like, <laughs> uh, approach to cooking. And so I'm experimenting with things and, and, you know, just understanding what is actually happening with the food as you cook it. It's fascinating. I love it. Yeah. The scientific approach to it is just wonderful. And the, one of the pictures from his book that really sticks out in my mind is that top view of uh, soft boiled eggs and hard boiled eggs that have been cooked from, you know, in 30 second intervals from 30 seconds through like eight minutes or something like that. And there's, you know, 16 eggs and they're all this different, these different uh, consistencies and beautiful yellow colors. And I like that approach, learning the technique, learning what it means. It, it just feels like it gives you so much uh, flexibility and uh, 
you know, skills to be able to experiment in the kitchen. And I always thought it was recipes. <laughs> and, and I guess right, it's right. not. Yeah, you can follow recipes, um, which is fine. But once you understand, you know, more of the kind of basic principles, it gives you much more, well, a, a much more knowledgeable approach to experimentation. What's what's your favorite thing to make? Oh boy, you know we pick. So Jamie, my wife, and I, we pick different recipes every week. So, um, and we just love to experiment, and we also love to try and recreate some of the dishes that we eat at restaurants and and try and bring them home. Um, favorite thing to make. God, I'm really failing with you on these particular questions because we try something oh, different every single week. And, um, you know, in the summertime, we're doing a lot of grilling. In the wintertime, we're making soups and stews and, and things like that. One of my daughters really loves stir fry. We just looked up uh, Kenji Lopez did a... Um, I think it was a Kung Pao chicken or a sweet and sour chicken uh, a couple weeks ago. Sweet and sour chicken, yes. It was sweet and sour chicken, so you know that's on our list to try, and those videos are just so much fun. So, yeah, yeah do the sweet and sour chicken. We actually did that one as well, and it was amazingly uh -huh. good and so simple and easy to do. And I agree, his videos are are wonderful. The point of view that he has is just well shot and just so endearing. It is, and I love those too because we're looking at, you know, Kenji Lopez is working from his home kitchen, and, you know, it's a mess, and his dogs are running around, <laughs> and he's got bare feet, <laughs> you know. Uh, uh, yeah, it's really fun. Yeah, it was interesting to read about why he's barefoot in the kitchen. I mean, it's all related to his yeah, heritage. Yeah. It's been great talking to you. I can't believe the time is already mm -hmm. over. Uh, thank you for spending your time with me today. It's just been lovely to get to know you a little bit more and uh, to hear about clockwork and Prince and Paisley Park. Will you join us again sometime in the future? Absolutely, and, and hopefully we can meet in real life sometime. Oh my gosh, wouldn't it be great to have a coffee in a shop somewhere in 2021 where there's no pandemic and you know the ability to sit outside or inside with an actual <laughs> other right. person? I'm, I'm uh... I'm ready. <laughs> I'm ready to. Thank you, Chuck, for joining us. All right. Thanks a lot. Chuck Hermes is the founding partner at Clockwork, and you can find him online as at Chuck Hermes. You've been listening to the 107 podcast. Find us online at 107.com slash podcast. And if you have a second, do send us a message. We love hearing from you. Our email address is podcast at 107.com. Until next time, this is Ivan Stegich. Thanks for listening.